Welcome to the Influential Personal Brand Podcast. This is the place where you'll learn cutting-edge personal brand strategies from today's most recognizable influencers. We're going to teach you how to build a rock-solid reputation and then how to turn that reputation into revenue. I'm your lead host, Rory Vaden, co-founder of Brand Builders Group, Hall of Fame speaker, and New York Times bestselling author of Take the Stairs. I am excited to introduce you to a new friend of mine, Kim Scott. You probably recognize her as the New York Times bestselling author of the book Radical Candor, but a mutual friend of ours introduced us to each other, and so we're really just kind of getting to know each other, but I've got a lot of respect for her work, specifically with Radical Candor, which was a huge book, is a huge book. She also turned that book into a business, an executive education company, And we'll talk a little bit about that. And she's done the same with her new book. So she has a new book that is out, just came out, if you're listening to this episode as it's being released, called Just Work, Get Stuff Done Fast and Fair. And that is her newest book. So what you may not realize is that she's been a high-profile CEO coach for years and years. She worked with people at Dropbox, Qualtrics, Twitter, several other tech companies, She was also a member of the faculty at Apple University. And then before that, she worked at Google on the AdSense and YouTube and DoubleClick teams. There was a portion of her career, you know, she worked directly for Sheryl Sandberg. She tells some great stories about that. So anyways, we just thought it would be fun to have her come on, talk a little bit about her journey becoming an author, but really talk about Just Worked, a new book, and also how this kind of getting things done fast and fair applies to those of us with personal brands and businesses and our online community. So anyways, Kim, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So how did you go from radical candor to a book about work? I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. As I understand this, this is just work. The new book is really about workplace injustices. Yes. Talk to us about how did that transition happen? So after I wrote Radical Candor, and by the way, if you write a book about feedback, you're going to get a lot of it. And I certainly (laughs) did. Uh, And so I was giving a presentation about Radical Candor at a tech company in San Francisco. And the CEO of that company was someone I really liked and admired a lot and had been a, a colleague for the better part of a decade and is one of too few black women CEOs in tech. And Mm. after I gave the presentation, she pulled me aside and she said to me, I really love the idea of radical candor, Kim, and it's, I think it's going to help me build the kind of culture I want. But I got to tell you, it's much harder for me to put it into practice than it is for you. She said, Interesting. Yeah, as soon as I offer even the most compassionate candor, I get slimed with the angry black woman stereotype. And I knew this Mm. was true. And and I sort of realized three things at the same time. The first was that I had failed to be the kind of colleague that I wanted to be, that I saw myself as, because I had been in denial about the kinds of things that were happening to her. I had failed to notice that over the better part of a decade working together, 
She always, 100% of the time, showed up as cheerful and pleasant and never the slightest bit annoyed. And believe me, in that period of time, she Mm. had what to be PO'd about. So it never had occurred to me that the toll that must take on her, I had ignored the kinds of things that were causing her to have to behave that way. Furthermore, I had also been in denial about the kinds of things that were happening to me as a woman in the workplace, because it was harder for her than for me. It was harder for me than for the men who I worked with to put these ideas into practice. And I had just kind of glossed over that fact. I touched very lightly on it in the book. And the third revelation I had was You're that- You're talking it, about in Radical Candor. You touched it, on that very lightly. Very about lightly. The, about the messenger, in addition to kind of like the method, affects that can affect things. Just about sexism in the workplace. Uh, right, yeah. And, uh, and, and the third thing that I realized was that throughout my career, I had very often failed to be the kind of leader that would prevent this kind of nonsense from allowing everyone on my team to just work, to, to do the best work of their lives, sort of unimpeded by nonsense by various sorts of bias, prejudice, and bullying that, that happens at work. And so I, I realized this was something I needed to give more thought to. And that was sort of when I sat down to start writing Just Work. Gotcha. Okay. So you're kind of waking up to the idea that injustice or bias, which I guess would be a, a lighter form on the continuum, is something that is there all day, every day. And I mean, I mean, is that part of the conclusion you would still stand in? Is that like what you said, it was harder for her? It was, you know, it was harder for her than you, harder for you than, you know, maybe a white male. And do you still stand very much convicted in that space that that is (laughs) the truth? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent. And in fact, I would say it's not only bias. I think one of the mistakes that I made for a lot of my career was that I I tried to convince myself it was always bias, but I think it's one of the core ideas in the book is it's really important to distinguish between bias, prejudice, and bullying. So bias, I'm going to define as not meaning it. Prejudice, I'm going to define as meaning it. It's a very conscious belief. And bullying, I'm going to define as meaning harm. And these are three very different attitudes and behaviors. And I think both mm. at, when when we're confronted with them as the person harmed by these attitudes and behaviors, we've got to respond differently. And as leaders, we've got to respond differently. We've got to we've got to create very different kinds of interventions depending on what we're facing. I think that's a really fascinating delineation there between those. And what are some of the as a leader in the workplace, or as you're training leaders, what are some of the things that you're teaching them to look for to kind of identify bias, prejudice, bullying? I mean, and I think bullying to me feels a little more obvious, a little more noticeable, but to me, it's more like prejudice is a little harder to identify, and then bias is almost like invisible. So, I mean... So you've got to make the invisible visible. So... And by the way, it's you've got to notice what you are reluctant to notice, I guess is a better way to put it. So one of the things that I recommend that leaders do is to create bias interrupters on their team. So, And there's all different kinds of bias. There's racial bias, there's gender bias, there's, there's bias around sexual orientation, there's bias around mental health, there's all these biases that we have. And so rather than doing an abstract unconscious bias training for folks, what I recommend is is to teach people 
to, to come up with a phrase that, that everybody's going to agree on, that, that they're mm-hmm. going to use to flag bias when they notice it in a meeting or, or just in the hallway, in the office, on the Zoom. The important thing is that it's a shared vocabulary. So some teams we've worked with have chosen to, to say bias alert. With my editor, he and I would use yo. So if he said yo to me, I knew that meant that I had said or done something that was biased. With Trier Bryant, my co-founder and I, we use a purple flag. So, so if Trier says purple flag, to me, I know I've just said or done something biased. And then the next thing that leaders need to do is to teach people when, you're, when you are the person whose bias has been flagged, how to respond. Because very often when somebody points out that we've said or done something biased, we feel ashamed. And very often when we feel ashamed, we don't respond well. In fact, we respond with denial or, or defensive worse. for, yeah. defensive for sure. Yeah. Like, no, yeah. I didn't say that. I didn't mean that. I mean that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. I've done that. I bet you've, I mean, we've all done that. So I the, feel almost like it's a human instinct to yeah. that. It's almost like a form of being attacked like the same way you would deal with a physical attack with like running away or fighting back. It's like when you under encounter this like professional feedback, it's like, no, no, that, you know, that's not, that's not me. Yeah. Yeah. So I think what you want to do is you want to teach people either to say, you're right. I get it. I'm sorry. I'll try not to do it again, but please point it out if I do. And if you don't understand why what you said or did was biased, you just say, I don't, I don't get it. Can you explain it to me after the meeting? And then the meeting goes on. And it's important that it be very quick, that these bias interruptions, because bias happens so often, if we don't learn how to interrupt it quickly and publicly, then it's bound to keep going. You want to, as a leader, teach people to have kind of a growth mindset around their biases. Because obviously, if you're learning math or you're learning to throw a base, you're learning any new skill, throw a, a baseball you're going to make mistakes, and, in, and and you can only get better if someone points your mistakes out to you, and if you can overcome that natural feeling. And, and this is true in general. When I was teaching radical candor, I still do. People are defensive in the face of any kind of criticism, but they're especially defensive in the face of, of criticism around something that they said or did is biased. But we've got to learn how to accept this with a growth mindset, accept this kind of feedback with a growth mindset. And unlike other kinds of criticism, this needs to happen in public. It needs to happen in a meeting publicly, because otherwise, if you don't interrupt the bias, it's going gonna, it's gonna to continue. It, it, people will keep making the same mistake. So Interesting. Yeah, let me tell you just like a quick story about a successful bias interruption. So a friend of mine, Aileen Lee, walks into a meeting with two colleagues who are men. And she sits down and her two colleagues sit down to her left. And Aileen is the person who has the expertise that is necessary for her team to win the deal with this other company they're meeting with. So they're sitting down at this long conference table. People from the other team file in. The first guy comes and sits down across from the guy to Aileen's left. The next guy comes in and sits across from the guy to his left. And then everybody files on down the table, kind of leaving Aileen dangling by herself at the end of the, at the, end of the table. And so this is a little awkward, but she doesn't let it bother her. She starts talking and the people on the other side of the table respond to the men who she's with, as though she hasn't talked, as though they've talked. Mm-hmm. And this is a very sort of 
standard kind of. Yeah, not an uncommon, not an uncommon, probably all too uncommon thing. Yeah. Probably seen it happen all the time. And it happens once, it happens twice, it happens a third time. And finally, her business partner stands up and said, I think Aileen and I should switch seats. So this is a small bias interruption. They don't have like a... It's not an intervention, like a big intervention, but they're saying, whoa, something's going on here. I think Aileen and I should switch seats. And they switch seats and the whole dynamic in the room changes because all of a sudden the other side realizes what they're doing and they stop doing it. They didn't mean to do it. And so I like this story for a couple of reasons. One is it was so much easier for him as an upstander to do this than it would have been for Aileen to do it. If she had stood up and said, I think we should switch seats, then there would have been like bias heaped on top of bias. She all of a sudden would have been aggressive or abrasive or heaven knows what else she would have been called. So it was much easier for him. And also his motivation is really, as an upstander, is really important. Part of the reason he did it is because he cares about Aileen and he didn't like seeing her get ignored. But the other part of the reason that he did it was because he wanted to win the deal. He wanted to just work. And he knew that Aileen had the expertise. And if he couldn't get those people on the other team to listen to her, then they were not going to win the deal. So it's this is the just work part of just work. There was a justice element. There was like, a, I just want to get the deal done. And there was also him just standing up, not for Aileen. It wasn't like she was a helpless person, but to what was going on in the room. So that's a simple example of, of somebody who used an I statement to intervene. And the reason why I think it's so important that leaders create these bias interrupters is that that sort of thing happens so rarely. And if you can get that kind of thing happening more on your team... You mean the bias interrupters happen rarely. The bias interrupter happens so rarely. Yeah, the bias itself happens... Happens a lot, yeah. ...all the time, incessantly. So if you can get that flywheel going, it's like doesn't have to be a huge deal in that it wasn't like a major conflict, but it is a huge deal in that they won the deal because of it. And everybody was able to do better work because the the bias was gotten out of the way. Hi, it's AJ Vaden. And thanks for listening to the Influential Personal Brand Podcast. Did you know that the ideas we share on the show are things we actually specialize in helping you implement? If you want to raise your public profile and turn your reputation into revenue, please visit freecall.brandbuildersgroup.com to sign up for a free brand strategy call with one of our personal brand strategists. Again, that's freecall.brandbuildersgroup.com to sign up for your free call. Talk to you soon. I really appreciate the message and kind of the spirit of that, you know, of the title, which is, you know, in alignment with the book, which is like, hey, if we can get this bias and this prejudice out of here, then it's like we can just work like we can we can come together as a team. We can focus. We can drive results and not like get caught up in, you know, nonsense as you the word I think you used earlier. I hope you don't mind. I'm fascinated about this is I was wondering if if I could talk to you a little bit about, you know, a lot of people who listen to this show are. Influence. I mean, pretty much everyone who listens to this show in some level would be probably considered an influencer. Some of them have very large followings. Some have very small followings. I think it's really fascinating how you're talking about how bias interrupters, this type of feedback should happen publicly, whereas typically 
feedback is is usually more private. You know, it makes my mind think of social media. Like this is yeah. you know, the world we're 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 trying to navigate. Particularly, our community is going. My my biggest question is to go. How do we catch ourselves? Particularly, if we're creating content, you know, which is a little bit different, but not too much different. I wouldn't think. Like, how do I create catch myself? It could be with creating content, but I think it's probably the same in a boardroom or the same at a restaurant or anywhere where we go, how do we catch ourselves committing these biases? And is there a way that we can create these interrupters for ourselves? And then is there a way that that does or does not shape our communication, our public communication through social? Yeah, it's a really it's a really important question. So one of the things that I did when I was in the course of writing this book, because I knew that I was probably writing in a way that was biased, revealing certain prejudices. And so sometimes I tend to use very aggressive language that some people might consider bullying. <laughs> and so I really wanted someone to help me flag this. I mean, I think that some people can give themselves feedback and can catch themselves, but I find I need others. I need other people to offer me criticism. And so I actually worked with a number of people who who were sort of bias busters. Mm. So I asked them to read the book with sort of looking for examples of bias that were making revealing themselves in my choice of words. And Breeze Harper is one of the people who I worked with as a bias buster, as well as, well as a no- number of others. And she was incredibly helpful to me to help me understand where I was going wrong. So to help me identify problems before the book got published, which was really important to me. Sometimes this is called like a sensitivity read, but I really object to that term because it wasn't really just about sensitivity. It was, I did not want to harm people. I did not want to do harm to people with the words that I chose. So I'll give you an example of one of the things. But that, that is the re- definition of bias for you that you gave earlier. It's like, I'm not meaning to do harm, I don't but, mean it, it. but it kind of yeah, happens but it anyways. Harm. Yeah. 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 My intentions don't really matter. My impact does. Sure. And one of the things that happened actually, and this I think happens to a lot of people. So I'll share this. Breeze flagged about nine words that I tended to use that were problematic. Nine. Mm. And my instinct, my first instinct was, oh, my God, no word in the English language is safe, which is ridiculous, (laughs) right? One thing I would recommend to people is that you try to quantify your biases. Like there were nine words I needed to change, and there are hundreds of thousands of words in the English language. So it was not that big of a deal, really. And one of the words in particular that she flagged is I tend to use the word see when what I mean is notice or understand. And uh, so this is called ableist language. I'm sort of, mm. I'm sort of, a, because the implication, the, un, the unintentional implication is that if someone is blind, they don't notice or understand. And of course, that's false. I know that's, I don't mean uh. that, but that's kind of the sloppy metaphor. Slop, well, I call them sloppy sight metaphors. And I care about this and I care about it because I believe words matter and I'm a writer and so I should care about words. And I also cared about it because another one of the people who is helping me to edit the book is a guy named Zach Shore, who's a historian who's blind. And so the Mm. last thing in the world I wanted to do was to to use the language that would that would harm Zach and and people like Zach, other blind people in some kind of way. So because I care about Zach and also because I wanted to use better language, 
I thought I had fixed this problem that I had, but I decided to do a quick search right before I sent the book to my editor. And I had used sloppy site metaphors, guess how many times in a 350-page book? Um, I mean, I don't know, 25? 99 times. Wow. 99 times. Wow. A lot of times. A lot of times. So it's difficult to become aware of your biases. And I believe we need, this is why I think it's so important to flag bias publicly, to say bias alert, to have these bias interrupters. Because only when our biases get interrupted repeatedly do we begin to change our thought patterns around them. So I think that's really, so I really, that's a long-winded answer to your question. Yeah, but social media kind of serves, is is more and more serving in that way, right? Like people are speaking up very clearly when they think you have said something or done something wrong. So let's talk about the response part of it for a second, because I think that's really, yeah. like you said, like the... I think my my default, whether it's in a, a business boardroom or if it's at a family Thanksgiving or if it's on social media, my initial response is probably the same to reject, deny, dilute, dodge, yeah. you know, defend whatever, you know, variation you want to use of that. So many of the events that have happened, particularly in the last year, I feel like have at least opened up a number of people to go, you know what? I want to get better at this. I want to, I'm open to the idea that maybe I do have some biases. Maybe I even have some prejudices that I'm not aware of and I'm wanting to be open to it. So when it comes to us, how should we receive it? One of the best things I've ever heard about this is a podcast by Brene Brown about shame. She offered this podcast shortly Uh, after the murder of George Floyd. And she said so often, and she said, I'm speaking to my white audience here. She said so often when we get feedback that we've said something or done something that's racially biased or even prejudiced, we feel shame. And she encourages people to like notice in your body where you feel shame. Like I feel it in the back of my knees, the same place I feel like if I get too close to the edge of a high drop, Uh. I feel afraid, you know, it's a physical feeling. And when you feel ashamed, you got to learn how to calm your, you're having a fight or flight response. And we rarely respond in the way that we want to respond when we're having a fight or flight response. So you got to learn how to calm yourself down. So the first thing is calm down, like take a few deep breaths, walk away, don't respond immediately, walk away from Twitter or wherever you are. And then Brene Brown's point was that there's a giant difference between feeling ashamed and being shamed. So very often the person is giving you some feedback that is perfectly reasonable. And so you want to make sure that you respond to that reasonable feedback with a reasonable (laughs) response. So try to stay open to the feedback. But even if, and this is true of any kind of criticism, don't criticize the criticism. When someone is offering you some criticism, try to look for the gold in it. Treat it, even, even if it's not perfectly delivered. And so, and and this is something I found over and over again. When I've gotten, I got feedback recently, well, it was a couple of years ago now. I I tweeted something and I used the word crazy in an ableist way. And I didn't, what I really meant was irrational, you know, and 
Somebody pointed out that it was unfair to people who struggled with mental illness mm -hmm. for me to use a sloppy, sloppy metaphor. And I really appreciate it. They, they said it very nicely. They, they sent me a link to an article that I read that was really helpful. And so I said, thank you. And then I retweeted it so that others could avoid making the same mistake. And there I got some trollish response, you know, oh, everybody's oversensitive. Mm. And so now all of a sudden I'm in the position of, of having to explain to folks why it's, it's worth listening to this, to this kind of feedback. So I think that's really important is being open to the feedback, even if the feedback especially if it's well-delivered, but even when it's not well-delivered. So, uh, I think social media, it kind of lends itself to moral grandstanding. And so people are likely to, to call you some terrible name. And if you can, and, those, and this has happened to me over and over again, if you can find like the 5% of what you can agree with right. and state that, rather than going fighting an attack with another attack, it's incredible to me what good conversations you can have with people, how you can actually turn them around, even on social media. But don't give in to this moral grandstanding. Yeah. Don't play that game. Well, it's funny, too. And I, you, know, you said don't criticize the criticism, which is really good. What I find myself doing is I not only criticize the criticism, I criticize the criticizer. So they yes. attack me and I go, well, yeah, I might've done this, but only because yeah. you, you know, yeah. you did this. It just becomes this really negative spiral. I, you know, Navy SEALs have this thing called arousal response, which is like, there's a stimulus and it's like, don't just react to the stimulus, like process it yeah. for a second. And it's, it's such a, it's like an emotional discipline or like a mental a mental discipline. Yeah. So I think in the space of this, is there any sort of advice or wisdom or counsel specifically that you would give additionally to people who are out there that are messengers, they're communicating. These are the content creators of the world that are listening here and going, is there anything that we can do to kind of like I guess just be aware of this and drive more towards fairness and be sort of sensitive to, I mean, I, I think you've used some really hyper granular examples with you that would be, I think you, you could argue are overly sensitive or certainly being very hypersensitive. Do you think that all content creators should be that way or, you know, or any other kind of like last wisdom you would leave with us? You want to be aware of the impact that your words have on others. I think that whenever you are writing something or offering a podcast or even just tweeting, words matter. Words really matter. And if you're going to communicate with other people, you need to understand the impact of your words. So let's imagine that you were accidentally stepping on someone's toe and someone said, hey, you're on my toe. You wouldn't stand there and continue to stand on their toe and say, don't be so sensitive or wear steel-toed boots or I didn't mean to stand up. You would just get off their damn toe. And I think if you can kind of use that metaphor, that metaphor, that can be helpful. Another thing that I would say is when you notice bias, use an I statement. An I statement invites someone in to understand things from your perspective. When you notice prejudice, and you don't necessarily want to have a big debate, because people have a right to believe whatever they want to believe, but they don't have a right to impose 
those beliefs on others. And so when you, when you notice prejudice, when you notice an actual prejudice where somebody is saying something and meaning it, I think an it statement is much more effective. And an it statement can appeal to the law. It is illegal to. It can appeal to common sense. It's ridiculous to. But use that it statement to, to demarcate that boundary between one person's freedom to believe whatever they want, but another person's freedom not to have that belief imposed upon them. And then when it's bullying, you want to use a you statement, sort of, which pushes the other person away. You can't talk to me like that. Or what's going on for you here, if that feels like it's going to escalate? My daughter actually explained this to me in third grade. She was getting bullied, and I suggested to her that she that she use an I statement. You know, when you do this, I feel sad. And she kind of banged her fist on the table. And she said, Mom, he is trying to make me feel sad. Why would I tell him he succeeded? And I realized, gosh, that is very smart. And so a use statement sort of creates a small consequence for the other person. So you can sort of be be aware of, of whether you're using I or you or it, and that can really help you respond. And, and whether you think, is this, you don't have to be sure, but is this thing that you notice, is it bias, is it prejudice, is it bullying? And think about how to respond. Interesting. Super practical. I love that. So, y'all, the book is called Just Work. It is out right now. Of course, we're talking to Kim Scott, New York Times bestselling author of Radical Candor. This is her new work. Kim, thank you for these insights and I think just opening us a little bit towards the the need for sensitivity here and at least for awareness to these three levels, I think, of bias, prejudice and bullying and and then giving us some tactical tools here for how to respond with ourselves, with the the other people we're leading. And then also when we're the we're the subject or the, the victim of experiencing some of these things. Where do you want people to go if they want to learn more about you or you know connect up with you and, and the work you're doing? Sure. It's justworktogether.com is our website. And you can follow me at Kimball Scott on Twitter. Kim, thank you so much. Thanks for your great work. It's wonderful at any time that we get a chance to talk with somebody like you. And, and uh, it seems like, you know, the, the success of your books very much is dedicated or is very much the result of a dedication from you to your craft of advancing these ideas and sharpening them and clarifying them and polishing them and then presenting them to the world. And I love to see that the art itself is a reason why someone's succeeding. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. I I love writing and I love starting companies that help people put the ideas into practice. So really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. (laughs) All the best. That's all we've got for this episode of the Influential Personal Brand Podcast. But here's some great news. One of the most valuable things you can do to help us and other new potential listeners to find our show is for you to both rate this show and leave a review. So as a special bonus for you, if you leave us a comment in iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen, take a screenshot of your review and email it to podcast at brandbuildersgroup.com. We will give you free lifetime access to 25 of our most popular interviews on video in your own private members-only area. So go right now, rate us, review us, and then send a screenshot of it into 
podcast at brandbuildersgroup.com and we will get you set up with free lifetime access to our most popular video interviews all in one place. Also, please just share, share, share this podcast with anyone who you think might enjoy it. And until next time, remember that building a business isn't nearly as valuable as building a reputation.